it is a problem that's taken decades to get this bad. And I had certainly noticed it longer before that. Then I finally felt that I could contribute in helping to educate and, and to find solutions. It's no longer just about astronomy. The fight against light pollution has taken on so many other dimensions. But we do want you to think consciously about how you light your nighttime environment and what, what you can do to remain safe and secure in your property and still use the minimum amount of light possible. Happy International Dark Sky Week, everyone. That was Kelly Beatty, a former editor of Sky and Telescope magazine, and he is on the board of the International Dark Sky Association. He joins us today to kick off International Dark Sky Week with ideas on how you can get involved and to discuss the very important issue of light pollution in our night skies. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Okay. So Kelly Beatty, I want to thank you so much for taking time out to join us, talk about uh, light pollution in particular, because that's a concern that I've had for quite some time. And for many people, since our audience is all amateur astronomers, I'm sure that they are also um, eager to learn more about not just the, the extent of the problem of light pollution, but also some of the things, if anything, we can do about it. So, can you tell us a little bit about your work, how you got involved in this? Now, I also, you know, I know also that you've spent many, many years as an editor at Sky and Telescope. I've read your work. It's been amazing. I'm in, I, I am a big fan of the work that you did at Sky and Tell over the years. So I'm really happy to get these excuses to talk to you. But I know lately you've gotten involved uh, pretty extensively in the light pollution uh, issue. So can you tell us how that came about? Sure, Tony. And, you know, that's that Sky and Telescope uh, placement that actually made it possible for me to get deeply involved in light pollution. It was one of my beats, mm -hmm. if you will. <laughs> and so for, and for many, many years, I covered it sort of hands off as a journalist, uh, reporting on it, uh, you know, editing the articles that would come. And then there sort of came a tipping point. And that was really, I have to say 2006 when Sky and Telescope spun off a magazine called Night Sky. I remember that. Uh, that uh, that I was the editor for, and I and I basically said, you know, I I can't remain editorially neutral about this any longer, and so that's when I really started to proselytize uh, for about how uh, how long ago was that about that was you... that was fifteen years ago maybe okay um, yeah. and by then I had decided to join uh, uh, the board of the International Dark Sky Association and start really, because I'd always been sort of active locally, you know, lighting ordinances in my town and that sort of thing. Then I really got a, a sort of national and international uh, engagement. And that was when I kicked it into high gear. I want to talk a lot more about uh, the, the International Dark Sky Association, as well as International Dark Sky Week, which is coming up this week. But, um, I, but I just wanted to get some background here on your involvement in this. So for 15 years, I know you've been thinking about it for longer than that, um, but you really became concerned enough to get active about it. And was there anything that that in, in, in that specifically concerned you, or were you already noticing by this time, 15 years ago, that the night sky had become less vibrant, shall we say? <laughs> As if. Um, you know, the, it is a problem that's taken decades to get this bad, and I had certainly noticed it longer before that. Then I finally felt that I could contribute in helping to educate and, and to find solutions. And the educate part is really important. You know, a lot of the decision makers, the people who are deciding what kinds of street lights to put in or whether they're designed well, honestly don't know anything about lighting. At your local level, you go to your local town hall, it's the, you know, it's the the manager of the DPW or somebody on the planning board or something like that 
who's making judgments about what kind of lighting goes into the town or city. And so uh, what I found was that a little education goes a long way. And by just making myself available to speak uh, to any and all audiences on this topic, whether they were in, had an environmental bent or not, I've spoken to engineers and planning board members to here in Massachusetts, we have a sort of umbrella organization called the Massachusetts Municipal Association, sort of the, the, the uh, association of, of town managers and such. And they've been very, very receptive just to understanding more about light, because honestly, for a lot of people, it's a, it's a rather technical subject. In, in its essence, it's pretty simple to understand. You know, you don't want too much light. You don't want light splashing around where it shouldn't be. If, if, if light were water, <laughs> you know, and you went down the street during the middle of the day and everybody's sprinkler systems were just going all haywire all over the place and spraying into each other's yards and stuff, you would stop, you would make an effort to stop that immediately. But light somehow is something that, I don't know, can't be controlled, or at least in some people's minds, and obviously it can, and that's where I've been most effective, I think. Yeah, and I, I just to give a concrete example of what you're talking about as far as the municipalities go, I lived for many years in Alamogordo, New Mexico, and um, they have at the base of the mountain of the Sacramento Mountains in southern, I guess it's, it's near it's near El Paso, uh, the, the Texas-New Mexico border, they have an observatory there. They had Sunspot, New Mexico, which was a solar observatory. It's since moved to Arizona, and now they are, um, and there was also Apache Apache right. Point uh, is also up there. They're the ones that run the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. And these are important local uh, industries, if you want to call them that, in the area. And when and so when I had occasion to go to uh, Alamogordo again, I think it was 2005, the sky or the, I mean, the, the sky has always been beautiful there, but the town of Alamogordo was orange <laughs> because it had all, they had, they had mandated across the entire town that they put in these, what they were called full cutoff, um, sodium vapor lamps everywhere. And they have this orange glow. You've seen them all over the place, I'm sure. Uh, and they had those to, to accommodate the, uh, the astronomical observations going on at Apache point And that, and one of the reasons was that particular wavelength of light is can be easily filtered out by the professional right. astronomers right. and it doesn't become a problem. So that is an air that's an example of a municipality thinking it's important enough to build a whole town lighting system around astronomy. Now, obviously it'd be great if everybody felt that way, but you know, that's that's uh, at least one example where that's true. And yeah, and and let me jump in here, Tony, because sure. because you, you you raise a couple of really interesting points. The first is that that uh, that sodium light, uh, which is from the vibration of sodium atoms, and it gives off light, is at very specific wavelengths and therefore very easy to filter out, as you point out. But the downside to it is that it only emits like orange light or yellow light if it's low pressure sodium. It's not a full spectrum. Right. And so when you go into your parking lot trying to determine if that your red is that my red car or is that a green car? <laughs> That's true. I know. <laughs> right? You can't yeah. tell. And That's so true. The, the, those narrow wavelengths have a very poor color rendition. And and so that represents some of the societal trade-offs that we have to make in the lighting game to accommodate what has become sort of a 24-7 society on the one hand that really needs light uh, at night versus you know the needs of astronomers and others. And, and so the IDA has always stood for uh, uh, no, no light in the sky, but light on the ground. Yes, and, and that's one. This, and the second thing I want to point out is that you're absolutely right about this, these special cases around astronomical observatories. And of course, that was the genesis of the Dark Sky Association back in 1988, a couple of astronomers in Tucson uh, being alarmed about the growing light pollution and its effect on nearby Kitt Peak Observatory banded together and started this. But the point I want to make here is that it's no longer just about astronomy. The fight against light pollution has taken on so many other dimensions, human health, uh, nocturnal biology, uh, glare reduction, uh, you know, senior citizens being able to see well at night, 
energy savings. These are all components of controlling light pollution that have made it a more broadly based uh, you know, environmental concern and, and coalition and, and finding a lot more willing people willing to listen because it is no longer just about protecting the mountaintop observatories of astronomers. Yeah, and here in Florida, where I live, there's also a direct result. You're not allowed to have, for example, I live near Daytona Beach, and they have a pretty strict requirement about what lights can can be shown uh, toward the sea uh, because they don't want the turtle population thinking that the full moon, which is when they generally hatch and are guided by uh, to get them to the ocean, is the wrong way. They'll follow the lights instead of the full moon, and so uh, there's a there's a direct wildlife impact there. But I want to dive in a little bit about the health effects. I mean, really? <laughs> How it, it, light pollution hurts our our health? I, I don't I don't see. <laughs> other than being annoyed and getting stressed out, I don't generally find it unhealthy. But maybe yeah. I'm, maybe I'm well, saying something. Well, okay. So here's your here's your uh, uh your uh, uh biochemistry lesson for the day. Okay. Human, phys- <laughs> human physiology. You know, w- when it gets dark at night, uh, our our eyes have a little sensor that's kind of like an on-off trigger switch to the pineal gland in your brain. When it gets dark, you don't even need to be asleep, but when it gets dark, your eyes are literally telling your brain, it's time to make melatonin. Now, we've all heard of melatonin, and mm-hmm. some of us might even take it, right? It's something yeah, I have a jar at, of it in my, in my thing. At nighttime, right? Mm-hmm. And so melatonin is an interesting compound. It's, it's uh, seen as a way to kind of assist and regulate the immune system and general well-being in our body. And it's part of the circadian system that we go through day and night. During the daytime, there's very little melatonin in our bloodstream. And at night, there's lots of it. That's when the body makes it, when it's dark. When you interrupt that cycle, for whatever reason, uh, and we're talking about you know, run into the bathroom in the middle of the night or raiding the fridge and you suddenly expose your eyes to light, your melatonin production crashes and you got to kind of start all over again. And that melatonin has been shown to be very effective in suppressing, uh, certainly in mice and and more indirectly in humans, suppressing the growth of cancers, uh, especially breast cancer in women, and uh, prostate cancer in men. And so in the 1980s, uh, Dr. Uh, Richard Stevens, who's unfortunately passed a a couple of years ago, came to the conclusion that uh, those of us humans who are exposed to a lot of light at night have our circadian rhythms become so messed up that we become at greater risk for these cancers. And so um, that's why, for example, when you are, uh, you know, when you take a, a, a jet flight, you know, and you become jet lagged, mm-hmm. uh, part of it is that your body has not been able to regulate its, its, its melatonin cycle, its circadian cycle. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, I have to be a little bit careful here because there's a difference between, you know, having a little stray light coming in your bedroom window at night and doing night shift work at a hospital <laughs> okay and so and so th- there's no, a limit to how far we can extend this analogy with disrupting your circadian cycle moreover moreover you and i and most of the people watching this or listening to this uh have a much worse habit which is we tend to watch tv late at night we tend to look at our devices late at night and that also exposes us to a lot of blue light it's blue light, especially, that is the trigger for this. Now, that and, I've heard a lot about recently, yeah. So yeah. I know what you're talking about there. Yeah, so so the, the, the there are multiple triggers for, for this circadian disruption, and light from streetlights and exterior lights being just one of them. But that's the basis for how, why we're concerned about light pollution in, in society. And w- one more thing about this before we move on. Mm-hmm. More recent research is showing that um, disaffected populations under, you know, uh, minority populations and the kinds of uh, uh, groups that tend to populate uh, the cores of cities where the lights are brightest are at the greatest risk, right? Not only do they see fewer stars, I think that's kind of a given, but these, these 
biomedical effects are more pronounced uh, in them than they are for someone who lives in the suburbs or out on a ranch in Texas. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Because as someone who's actually tried to to view with a telescope in Times Square, I can definitely tell you it's bright in those cities. So that well, if if that's true, then this must be a long term cumulative effect, then because. If, if, if that does affect us with our melatonin production, then native peoples who happen to live in high latitudes on the, on the planet who have to deal with, say, a few months out of the year where they get no daylight, then that effect must be maybe shows up there. I mean, maybe there's a higher rate of cancer real, risk among a, Eskimos or something. I, I mean, it's a, I, it's a real great question. I would imagine during, during an Arctic winter, the Eskimos get really seriously dark adapted. Wouldn't you think? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I suppose that maybe it offsets. I don't know, but and, this, and I, you're, I, I don't know the answer. I don't know that any research has been done on that. The kinds of studies that have been done, uh, explore populations that have uh, either a need or a requirement to be working at night. Night shift uh, graveyard workers in factories, night shift nurses, those kinds of things. Okay, so uh, that's why it makes me think it's kind of a a, a cumulative effect because you're only you're only in those conditions for a few months out of the year uh, in in both night and daytime, well, winter and summer. And also, I should probably apologize. I'm not supposed we're not supposed to say Eskimos, and that's a that's a pejorative term, and I just didn't have it off of the, 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 the correct term off the top of my head. So my apologies if that, if that uh, upset anyone. I, I shouldn't have used that term. Um, okay, so let's talk now. So light pollution is a thing. <laughs> Anybody who has tried to find the Big Dipper on any given night and struggled with it because they don't see any stars know what we're talking about. And it's the result of a lot of things. There is a, but there's one conception I want to get your opinion on right away. Uh, before, and then when I want to move on to the uh, the uh, uh, International Dark Sky Association. Crime. People put, anybody who's passed a, a car dealership on a major boulevard knows what I'm talking about. Those things are, you could see those things literally, I think, from space, right? Why and what effect does having all these lights have on crime? Does it have an effect on crime? Because... This, I know this is a leading question. I know what you're going to say, but I learned this from the International Dark Sky Association, which is why I'm asking it. So please, let's talk about crime and lighting the lighting our properties up at night. Right. So, and we need to make a distinction here between the perception of safety and the uh, the and actually being safe. Right. That's exactly right. right. So, so people will. It's a universal trait. People feel safer in a brightly lit area but it doesn't necessarily make them safer. Uh, there was a celebrated study in Chicago is the poster child for bad lighting. Uh, <laughs> this goes back to the, this goes back to the era of the dailies as mayors of Chicago. And they had a kind of doorknob to doorknob lighting policy. And the, the place is really brilliantly lit up. And it turns out that in a lot of Chicago, there are, there are alleyways uh, between the backs of houses, not on the street side, but on the back side. And there had been a lot of crime. And so they decided that they were going to install uh, streetlights in the alleyways too. But they wanted to make sure that they were proving their point. So they did a scientific study of how much crime there was before they installed the lights and afterward so that they could show the population that crime had been reduced. Well, it didn't reduce. It went up. It, it gave the bad. The, you know, the, the, the criminals could see better, right? Yeah, they could see better. Or like they could count the money easier, or something. I don't know. But it went up by really? like by like sixteen percent. And so, again, the notion here that's important is not that we don't need light at night to see our way safely, as security. Uh, you know, a busy intersection where there are crosswalks and cars going by, it makes complete sense to have lighting there so you can see each other. But there's a limit to how much light you need before you are safe. Uh, and so the car dealership is a good one because that car dealership doesn't need to, it needs the lights to be bright while it's open so that their customers can see all the features of the cars. No question there, right? It would be right. nice if they were fully shielded so that the light's only going down. Right. I get that. But after hours, those lights are on to protect their inventory. And you don't need them to be on as completely bright as when you have customers there. All you need is for like a passing police car 
to be able to see that somebody is trying to break into a car. And, and it doesn't require a lot of light to reach that threshold. And even and better, so, we have we have infrared video cameras now that are yeah. easily going to be able to see this stuff. That's that. right. So that's right. Yeah. And so and so let's let's broaden out to the notion of you know neighborhoods and lighting those neighborhoods. Um, again, the human eye is very well adapted to seeing in dim light at night. Anyone who's walked around, you know, you know, in an otherwise dark place when there's only the light of the full moon knows that you can make your way around pretty easily, right? E even in that kind of light. So th where the dark sky advocates and the lighting professionals are coming to agreement on is that there are what we call five principles uh, for lighting at night. The, the, and they involve things like don't use too much light uh, if you don't need it, light only where you need it, uh, control that light so that you know you can only have only need to have it on when you need it, uh, and to and to use the what's called the lowest color temperature, and we'll get into that in a second. Have the light be the warmest hue that it can be, because when you look at the physiological uh, damage that's done by light at night, uh, almost all of it involves blue light. Now our eyes are especially sensitive to blue light at night. Uh, being an amateur astronomer, and, and a lot of you know this, your eyes are, are like, like painfully sensitive to blue light at night. That's why we, why we all run around with red flashlights, uh, not to ruin our dark adaptation. But it's also the case that in terms of the things we've been talking about, uh, melatonin suppression, and the uh, sea turtle hatchlings that can't find their way to the sea, and and uh, just sky glow in general, they all point back to blue light as the principal culprit. And so, uh, when we have these situations where there where there is uh, too much blue light, that's bad. So, over time, technology has allowed us to tweak the light from LEDs in particular, and maybe we'll have time to get into that in detail to warmer and warmer color hues. Okay, that, so that. And, and you know this from your own house. Uh, if you have uh, uh, like bluish fluorescent lights versus nice warm, warm white table lamps, you know, we prefer that, right? We prefer that warmer color. And studies have shown that for street lighting, this is also the case. People prefer the warmer hues. And that's good because that emits less blue light, creates less sky glow, less environmental disruption, less circadian uh scrambling well and and but but to be fair i just bought an led fixture for my kitchen because the old one went bad it had a fluorescent tube in it and i will it has the ability to tune i can go all the way from cool white which is blue uh down to the like 3000 3500 kelvin color temperature range so leds aren't necessarily blue anymore i guess is my point you can right. now they can be tuned to a wide variety of wavelengths so just because it's led doesn't mean it's going to be blue at least some of the ones that I've seen now, they may, you know, this is absolutely true. House. Absolutely true for interior living spaces. But when you get out on a street and you're dealing with a street, it's light, all blue. It's like, yeah. It's no, well, it's just all one color temperature. Now you can pick what color temperature that is. Um, think back to the curly Q compact fluorescent lights, right? When they first came out, they were all horribly blue and then warm white was invented. And the way they get that is they take the inside of the tube and they coat it with a phosphor that absorbs the blue light coming out of the vibrating Is that what that is? Down. Okay. Yeah. And then it re-radiates <laughs> it at a warmer color temperature. And so LEDs are the same way. They use these phosphor coatings to give you any color you want. And as a consequence of that, yes, inside, inside your house, you can have tunable LEDs. Outside in the real world, you kind of have to pick your spot in the spectrum that you, that you want these things to be emitted as. Okay. All right. Well, um, Okay, well let's 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 talk a little bit about the organization you're involved with, the International Dark Sky Association. Now, when this episode is posted, we're recording this on Friday the 2nd of April. I'm going to be posting this on the 5th, um uh a Monday. So, uh and that's the beginning of Dark Sky Week. So, let's go ahead and introduce that and talk about the IDA a little bit. You know, uh Dark Sky Week started out as the brainchild of a high school student. Her name was Jennifer Barlow, is Jennifer Barlow, uh, who lived in Virginia and, and was 
was in love with the night sky and she wanted to share that love. And so she picked this week in April, a time when there's no moon in the sky, to like have a star party, right? And so she start <laughs> she she started Dark Sky Week and it caught the attention of the International Dark Sky Association that sort of uh, embraced it and turned it into an international event. And so every year in this, you know, sort of second week in April, when we're all starting, at least here in the North, we're all starting to climb out of our winter, winter. enclosures <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and rediscover what the outside is like. It's a great time uh, to, to be discovering what's up in the night sky. And it helps if there's no moon in the sky, which is easily enough done by the calendar. And also if there's no light pollution or as little as possible. And so what we found during this year of, of pandemic is that people have been discovering the night sky in droves. They're stuck at home. Maybe they've got kids at home that are, you know, stir crazy, whatever. And they're in their bubble, right? So what they've right. got to work with is their night sky, uh, is their backyard. Sorry. And so and so they're getting out, you know, on those lounge chairs and looking up into the sky and get finding a constellation chart. This is a little known fact. During this past year, telescope manufacturers, well, two things have happened. It was difficult getting merchandise out of China, where, where most telescopes are made these days, and telescopes were flying off the shelves at retailers around the country. Oh, I know. My co-host is Dustin Gibson from OPT, and he's exactly. said it's been, it's been an explosive year. So, yeah. Exactly. Dustin, I know Dustin had to, like, hire more staff. And, yeah. And, and, and at the same time, because they couldn't get inventory, they were literally running out of telescopes. So that's an indication, right, that there's a kind of renaissance of appreciation of the night sky. Now, whether the people who bought these telescopes know how to use them, that's a that's another program. But it does. Uh, so so we're capitalizing or a podcast. Things. It's also a podcast, folks. <laughs> or a podcast, right? I consider a podcast program. Anyway, yeah. Um, it's telling us that people are going out and really starting to look up at the night sky. And maybe they're noticing that there's light pollution or not. A lot of people who live in a city environment maybe have never actually seen a super dark sky with the Milky Way arching overhead. I taught school for uh, taught a high school class for six years in astronomy, and I was stunned by how many current teenagers had never gotten far enough out of the city to, to know what a really dark sky oh, is. Oh, I know. Yeah. So here's a chance to introduce for us as amateur astronomers to take the lead in introducing people who uh, who want to, to, to what's up there in the night sky. And it's, you know, I, I have a saying, I've been in this game for a long time. I've been, was, I started at Sky and Telescope in 1974. Astronomy does not need to be difficult. It can just be beautiful. And so Amen. when I take yep. <laughs> when I take people out under the night sky for the first time with my laser pointer, you know, I do all of all the things that uh, all of us do. You know, I don't talk about the distances of stars and their color temperatures and that galaxy is, is exploding or whatever. I, I, you know, weave in the mythology and, and how the light from that star over there left, you know, during the before the invention of the telescope and is only now reaching our eyes, stuff like that. I find it very, it's educational, obviously, but it really engages the public and gets them uh, attuned to what you're trying to, to say. Oh, I love that you do that. I don't know of a single time when I've had a star party and I've been like narrating some some stories or talking about some of the mythologies that are going on behind the constellations where people don't, it's just quiet and they're just listening. Right. And they're looking up and uh, it's like it's a great time. It really is. So you're right. The story, I'm glad I'm glad you do that because the storytelling aspect of it, I think, is lost a little bit in this day and age where everybody has imaging telescopes and smartphones doing doing stuff with their telescopes and things like that. It's nice to just appreciate the dome itself. Right. And and this week during International Dark Sky Week, because there is no moon in the sky and because the temperatures are fairly warm, I want everyone who's listening and watching this to uh, become a citizen scientist for one week. Believe it or not, by just making some basic observations of the night sky, you can contribute to real science through a program called Globe at Night. Globeatnight.org is the website. 
And it essentially is this, you, you, you go onto this website, you, you uh, download a, a, a series of sky maps for this time of year uh, of, uh, you know, the, like the constellation Leo. And you look at your, your map of Leo and you look at how many, you let your eyes dark death and you look at how many stars you can see in Leo and you match it on the map and say, okay, I have a fourth magnitude sky. Those are the faintest stars I can see. You run over to your computer or even your handheld device. You call up the website, you uh, note your location and the time and the conditions. You know, it was partly cloudy. There were streetlights all around me, whatever it is. And that magnitude limit that you derive. And tens of thousands of people around the world are doing the same thing. And they're contributing and have been over a decade and more to a database that lighting researchers are using to help them understand light pollution. Now, why would that be valuable? Well, we've all seen the pictures of Earth from space, right? Mm -hmm. Of all the light that's streaming up into the sky. Oh, yeah. But there's kind, there's kind of a disconnect between those satellite images and what the light pollution situation is on the ground. Because the truth is, the worst polluters, uh, the, the lights that are the worst polluters and, and blocking out the most stars are not the ones that are shining straight up, but are the ones that are shining just above horizontal. And the satellites aren't seeing those. Obviously, it's a mix of all kinds. So by comparing what they see with the satellites and what these readings are telling them from the ground, as simple-minded as they are, it gives them a good ground truth uh, that allows them to extend the results of their research. So I, I encourage everyone to try it this week during International Dark Sky Week. Go to globeatnight.org. And it's a simple process. It's a great activity for your family, too. Yeah, I'm going to do it here on my property. So that'll be... I was just thinking about what you said about lights the, the going just a little bit above horizontal being the most uh, implicated here. I, I think I can see why, because that's the light that isn't just pointing straight to the to the ground and maybe reflecting off it a little bit, but this is going straight into the air column that you're looking up through and scattering. So right. I right. can see, yeah, I see what, so that's the worst, right? The, the sideways light. Right. So, so I live uh, in a suburb of Boston that's about 25 miles from downtown Boston. Mm -hmm. and, and so I can see a light dome in that direction. This is where, you know, the, the big city is. But what you don't appreciate until you think about this is that a light that's shining in my direction from Boston that's going just above horizontal is literally shining above my head in the atmosphere. Right. And, wow. and, and, uh, the, for the same physical reason that the sky is blue during the daytime, blue photons of light create the most scatter in the sky. And so when I look overhead, part of the reason that I can't see the very dimmest stars is that I am that those lights from Boston that are just above horizontal are literally creating light pollution over my head. That goes back to the blue LEDs you were talking about that tend to be installed in cities. That's why there's such a, uh, a problem because right. they, they do this effect more pronounced than say a, a, a more orange or red or but cooler. The blue way, those blue photons, they are the, they're, <laughs> you know, it's an interesting thing, Tony, if you think about it, we humans, and get, this gets back to your, your, your far Northern tribes, right? Mm -hmm. We humans evolved for millions of years in a world where we were exposed to, on average, 12 hours of bright light during the day out in the sun, right? Or, mm -hmm. or at least exposed to daylight and really dark darkness at night. Our circadian rhythm was as, you know, as maximized uh, between the highs and lows as it could be. Now think about modern society. We spend virtually all of our days indoors in kind of in kind of a gray light, right? and <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and uh, uh, we don't go outside into bright sunlight, heaven forbid. And then, <laughs> no, right? And then at night, we're we a nation of, of vampires. Extend, we extend that light into the wee hours when ordinarily we would be asleep, uh, and and so we don't yet know how our long-term health and our long-term circadian cycles have been affected by this shift that we've created through, through the, you know, uh, through our modern 
just our daily routines. Yeah. I mean, as you were just saying, the brightest brights and the darkest darks, the magnitude of that is much greater when you're out in nature. Uh, it's as bright as it can be and it's as dark as it can be. But when we're in a te technological uh environment we tend to that tends to be a lot less those magnitude shifts on both ends but between yeah between brightness and darkness tend to be a lot lower and in many cases you walk into certain buildings you're probably the same as a bright brightly lit daylight uh, room and it doesn't change much at all so right and so i just want to make it clear here the international dark sky association does not recommend that you go out and stand in the sun for an hour every day okay <laughs> 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 but but we do want you to think consciously about how you light your nighttime environment uh, and what what you can do to remain safe and secure in your property uh, and 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 where you go and still use the minimum amount of light possible. What about convincing businesses to do the same? If you see an uh, an egregious situation in your hometown, is there anything that can be done? Uh, does the, is, does the IDA website have any advice for people? Can they go to like, um, I happen to know f near where I live, there's a, there's a, there's a, a filling station that's just, you know, could do a lot better. And I, I would, is there anything I can do to maybe make that better or should I just live with it? So, okay, boy, this is the, <laughs> this is such a broad topic. Yeah. You know, businesses overlight themselves to attract customers and because of insurance requirements they're they're mandated well, by well insurance. they they and their insurance companies well okay their insurance companies might insist that their parking lots are lit up but let's face it uh your your typical 24 7 gas station or or fast food establishment is lit much brighter as much to attract more customers than the other business next door as it is to, to ensure yeah. safety. And to the extent that there are a lot of cases of, imagine that you've just filled up at a gas station that's brightly lit and you leave your gas, the gas station and turn out onto a road, two bad things are happening right at the same time. First, you might not remember to turn your headlights back on. Second, your eyes have adjusted to this bright light and suddenly you're inserted into a dim environment where you might not see a pedestrian or a cyclist coming down the street. And so overlighting is a problem uh, of safety in not the way that you might think. Exactly, because anybody, all of us amateurs know that when it takes a while for us to get dark adapted. So right, once exactly. our retina or our iris has snapped shut from a bright light, it takes a long time to be able to, to get that back again, 30 minutes it or does. so. so yeah. It does. It does. It also, I mean, just anecdotally, it, we've all experienced uh, driving down the road. And, you know, you as it, when you're driving down a dark road by yourself, uh, you kind of get partly dark, dark adapted. It's called mesopic vision where you're kind of in that in-between zone where you're not dark adapted, but you're not in daylight. And then a car comes at you with one of a new, <laughs> these newer designed headlights that, that first of all, have a lot more blue in them than they used to. And second of all, we don't really think of this, but they're much more of a point source than we used to. You know, Tony, when you and I were growing up, young kids, headlights were these big round discs, <laughs> yeah. right? And, yeah. and they were, in a sense, they were a distributed light source. Mm -hmm. And when that gets focused on our retina, it creates a circle of light as opposed to a point of light. And so nowadays, those, those new headlights are really intense from a very small point of light, and it hurts to look at them. And it you know, really messes up. You're, you're, you're almost uh, blinded by the glare that those cause. So you ask what you can do. Uh, for most, there, there are short-term solutions and longer-term solutions. Getting people to change the lights that they have is the most difficult thing to do. You know, it's a buyer's remorse kind of thing. Right. But lots and lots of cities and towns all across this country are in the process right now of converting their streetlights to LEDs from the, the sodium lights that they might have had or mercury vapor or or halide, metal halide, whatever it might be. And now is the time to be most effective in getting the right choices made by your town officials. So you can work through 
the planning board or the DPW. It, uh, often there is an environmental and sustainability committee in your town government structure uh, to talk to them about, about making sure that, first of all, the streetlights are, are you're going to get LED streetlights eventually. I, I would take money. Oh, yeah. Within, Just because right? of the energy savings alone. They're, By they're the energy savings us. alone. Yeah. But you, there are, streetlights are like that Clint Eastwood movie, right? There are the good, the bad, and the ugly. And making the right choice That's a good movie. now, before they're installed, before they're selected, can will pay dividends for a generation to come. For the lights that already exist, uh, that's a tougher that's a tougher uh, uh, a bar to clear. You you can sometimes have a an outdoor lighting ordinance or bylaw installed and in, you know uh, uh, approved in your town. But that often doesn't apply to the lighting that all already has been installed. Yeah, it'll get grandfathered in. The yeah, right, grandfathered exists. in. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's a bigger challenge. And also, even in those places that have lighting ordinances, getting them enforced in a in a consistent way has been a problem as well. Okay. Yeah. I guess I don't, I don't have a lot of expectation on being able to change what's already there. I just thought, <laughs> thought I'd ask you, all right, let's, let's switch to amateur astronomers for a second. You know, the hobby, as we've pointed out over the pandemic has exploded. People are buying telescopes, many for the first time, um, uh, regardless of their light pollution situation. What are some of the best tools? And I will you know, I'll just point out that Dustin and I have talked at, at, at many, many episodes about the triad filter that they've developed, which is a good filter, which, which is a narrow band filter for at three wavelengths that really lets you see certain um, uh, objects in the night sky in emission uh, right. with your imager. Right. So that's really, that's a really, it's an outstanding tool for anybody who's imaging in, in the middle of the city. For imaging. Visually, right. it's a different story. And that's where I'm heading. So I am a visual astronomer. I like the eyepiece. I don't do a lot of imaging. Is What are the best tools available to me? It's not practical for me to drive an hour away or maybe longer to get to a dark sky. What are some of the things that I can do with my new scope to combat this? So... Uh... This is a solution that is changing. As long as there are still a lot of sodium lights in the world, you have the chance to reduce the effect of those lights on what you're seeing. So what you want to do is, is add a filter that blocks out the principal emissions from our artificial lights. In the case of sodium, it's very easy to do because it's just a very narrow slice of the spectrum at the yellow-orange end of it. And you, once you block those, it, it suddenly makes the contrast. And, and again, we're talking about, when we talk about creating filters, it's not for the stars themselves, right? The moon, the planets, stars, clusters of stars, are not generally impacted much by light pollution. Uh, when you're looking through your scope, the greater the magnification you use, the more you increase the contrast with the background. And so uh, that, will, that will be one aid for you. But generally, because they're point sources, they're, they're not blotted out. Yes, it's true that when I look up into a night sky, I see fewer stars because of light pollution. But if I add magnification to that, binoculars, a small telescope, a big telescope, I do get to see those stars. I don't lose that much from the view that I'm, I'm getting. Where the light pollution is most destructive is in the, the views of faint fuzzies, as we like to call them. In yeah. the Galaxies, nebulas especially, are horribly impacted by light pollution. And it's there that filters can't, because nebulas in particular are often emitting light at very specific wavelengths, as Dustin has pointed out, mm -hmm. you can use filters with your telescope to uh, improve the contrast with the background. You basically make the background darker. And so the, 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 you know, the galaxy or the nebula stands out a little bit better. What makes this more effective, however, because you ultimately, you use these filters to block part of the light that's reaching your eye, the bigger the aperture of your telescope, the more effective they are. 
for a because lot of you're, you're throwing away some photons to get this added it, to compensate you get a bigger exactly. aperture to help that's yeah. right and so and so unfortunately a lot of beginner level telescopes that one have been flying off of dustin shelves and everybody else's <laughs> shelves right. during this pandemic tend to have smaller apertures the diameter of the lens or mirror that you're talking about and and in those cases using a filter is um a coin flip right if it, you might or might not you you'll certainly darken the background but you might no longer be able to see the the galaxy that you were trying to to see in the first place yeah i suppose another little trick i've i've gotten used to is if you have a really a, like an annoying street light in your neighborhood um getting getting that blocked out to get your light your eyes better um uh, adjusted to a darker sky than what's in the sky background also helps quite a bit. Um, not the least of which you don't have that annoying light in your face, but just find some way to maybe stand behind a, a screen or something like that also helps a bit. Um, oh yeah. I but, mean, but, you, you've heard that famous saying from, from uh, the late Tip O'Neill that all politics is local. <laughs> yeah. And the same is true with light pollution. Yes. When all I light pollution from, is local. Yeah. All of light pollution is local. When I view, you know, from my suburban Boston home, yes, I am seeing some photons that are that are uh, streaming overhead from downtown Boston, but the inverse square law still rules. And and if I have a bright light source that's near me, that has the potential to cause much greater light pollution. Not to mention the glare and the reduction in my my dark adaptation than any light dome that might be on the distant horizon. So. I, what I tell people to do, if they're you know if they're first timers with their telescope and they're looking for a way to get away from the city lights, just go to a local ball field, sports field, a soccer field, a little league diamond, so, you know, someplace like that that is not going to have not going to be rimmed with with lights around it, and you'll have at least locally you'll create a bubble of darkness that, that makes your stargazing a lot more pleasant. That's great advice. I mean, Again, you don't a game not going on, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's a great that's a great piece of advice. I never thought of that. There's a good park not too far from me that uh, is a softball field that uh, when it's not used is rimmed by trees to get some of the the, the sky dome that you see from different cities uh, are gone, and I, I I can get a much darker experience. Now, so that's good just advice. Just a note of caution here that it sometimes helps depends on your local circumstance. If you want, if you check in with the local police first and say, "Hey, look, I'm gonna be, I'm just going out into this 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 uh, soccer field with my telescope. If you see me, you know, uh, <laughs> that's who I, that's who I am. I'm not looking in people's windows, and, <laughs> and please don't shine your flashlights at me." <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Because cops love to do that. They love to shine those bright lights right in your face. Um, but. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Telescopes, I guess, can look pretty intimidating to somebody yes, who doesn't know what you're doing. Uh, so that's that's good advice. Okay, well, I, I only have you for a few more minutes. I know you got to go, but I just really, I come. I come from the professional realm where I've worked for 30 years and I've been in professional observatories around the world. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately, uh, and I don't think this will affect amateur astronomers as much, but it, it could. Um, I want to get your thoughts on the latest round of these, these companies now who are launching hundreds and thousands of satellites like Starlink. Ten, and, tens and of thousands. Yes. Tens of thousands of satellites. Are you, what you, are you worried about this at all, or what are your thoughts on on that business? Well, sure, and and the the, the you know the gorilla in the room here is SpaceX, uh, and yep. the uh, and the the constellation of, of satellites that it's launching, the Starlink system, yep. and and to the extent, fortunately, in this arena, all astronomers are affected, and especially professional astronomers, and the. American Astronomical Society in particular has engaged uh, SpaceX to try to find solutions to minimize the appearance of their, their satellites in the sky. We're, we're talking, for, no, for those who might not be aware of this, we're talking about constellations of, of satellites, small satellites in relatively low and high orbits around the Earth, and their purpose is laudable. It's to bring internet service global. Oh, I know. I want right? the service. I want it's it. <laughs> it's absolutely. It's it is it is one of these things where, 
you know, maybe the needs of astronomers are, are secondary to the primary yeah. goal here. But right. to, to the extent we can, um, the, the AAS has already engaged SpaceX and they're looking at ways of mitigating the, the, the appearance of these satellites in the sky. Remember, you see a satellite in the sky because sunlight is reflecting off of it and down right. to you. So if the satellite is, is black, it's not going to reflect as much. The flip side of that, if, if the satellite is black, it's going to absorb a lot of sunlight and get hot. So there are, there are issues here. But uh, SpaceX has, has been, to some extent, very accommodating and has already put in place some tests of making their satellites less obvious in the night sky. The problem is that there is no law that says that you cannot launch tens of thousands of satellites. There, there is no law against that. And SpaceX is not the only player in this game. That's the, right. the, the, the commercial lure of being able to provide global uh, internet access is strong. And so this happens to be the first out of the gate. And we're hoping to at least, the, the goal is to get the appearance of even the lowest of these satellites in this mega constellation at seventh magnitude or fainter. That means at least, at the very least, you won't be able to see them by eye. Right. It doesn't solve the problem of you taking a long exposure photograph and having little streaks cross it. You know, that they're they're going to be there. And this is at an evolving magnitude. area this is an evolving area of engagement between astronomers. Uh, and the, the, the satellite companies. And I need to remember, it's not just visible light, it's radio frequencies as well, uh, because they, they're sending and receiving, you know, uh, radio communications. So stay tuned. Let's have this conversation again in two years, and we might know more. Yeah, the studies that have been done so far have, have been in the visible part of the spectrum and some in the infrared, but the the radio is still a wide open question. That would be a, a one that I think uh, observatories like ALMA would care very much about, right? The, these radio submillimeter band uh, uh, observatories. Well, so, because the, the slices of the, of the electromagnetic spectrum are valuable, right? You yeah. sell off frequency allocations uh, to various concerns. And, and there was a time when radio astronomy had this big swath of protected frequencies, and it's been chopped up and sliced and diced evermore. It's, it's analogous to wildlife refuges. There was a time when we had all these right. areas set aside for wildlife that was so valuable, it suddenly got uh, eaten up into, uh, into more commercial uses. So, um, right. and, the... and, you know, Tony, just to kind of bring this to a close, we are not blind, so to speak, to the notion that that society has needs, right? We want to be able to move about at night safely on our streets and, and in, in the larger, along our highways and such. Uh, just like we, we, we want to be able to use these frequencies. And so there's going, compromise is going to be the name of the game. Can we, getting back to the light pollution issue, can we come to an agreement as to how much light is the right amount of light can we control it? Can we use color temperatures that are warmer and therefore less affecting of the environment at night? I think there is a there is a happy medium here. We just haven't gotten to it yet. So far, from what I've been able to gather from the studies that have been done, the real danger to a professional astronomy anyway, and to some extent anybody doing some kind of uh, asteroid search survey like what Asteroid Hunters does, one of our, uh, somebody we've had on this program several times, uh, is the dusk to dawn hours tend to be the one where the geometry is such, as you point out, sunlight reflects off the satellites and gets in our way. Uh, that's the big danger area is, done, is, is 30 minutes or so done, uh, dusk to dawn area. Everything else is still pretty good. Uh, and even the, uh, the AAS and the, uh, European, uh, the uh, European Southern Observatory did a study that also said that the middle of the night stuff, if you plan carefully, shouldn't should be able to mitigate the issues from all of these satellites. So right. there's an example and, of compromise, right? Plan ahead. Just so, people, just so people understand, the reason that the middle of the night is is more satellite free is that those the, the satellites are not in sunlight any longer. They right. they're still there, but they're dark. They're unilluminated. Right. They're not. And in fact, there was up. a study a study out that just came out uh, that I looked at just a couple of days ago. This was pre-mega constellation. This is pre-SpaceX. 
that estimated that between satellites and space debris that already exists in orbit, in these critical dusk and pre-dawn hours, can increase the incident diffuse sky background by up to 10% uh, over what you would see if there were no satellites. So it is definitely a, a growing concern. Good. Okay. Yes, that's right. I was going to bring that up as well. The sky background is is also being affected. So, okay. Well, I just have you for a few more minutes. Um, and since you spent so long at Sky and Telescope, the magazine, um, I'd like to ask you, how are things at Sky and Telescope? That is, is, is I does the AAS own it now? Yes. Okay. So it's owned by the American Astronautical uh, Astronomical Society. And is it, what are things like there? How is it, what is the magazine doing? Is it thriving? Well, I, is it... I, I need to, I need a caveat. I actually retired from full-time I know, work at Sky Telescope I know, years but, ago. but you I still, still like, sure, sure, sure. You still got buds, I'm sure. <laughs> Being purchased by the AAS was the best thing that ever could have happened to Sky and Telescope in a very um, competitive and uh, not favorable publications marketplace. We, we, I think you've probably all heard that, you know, it's not a good time to be a print publication, be it a newspaper, a magazine, you know, anything like that, because people are finding the sources of information that they want on the, on the web, that the magazines and publications themselves have a web presence that kind of obviate the need for print publications. That said, the AAS provides a, a, a welcome haven for us for a couple of reasons. First of all, it puts our ownership squarely in the, in the realm of astronomy, right? If Sky, now Sky and Telescope is owned by live and kicking professional astronomers, and that's a good thing. <laughs> the yes. second thing is that, little known fact, one of the AAS's missions is outreach uh, to reach not just the professional astronomical community, but the greater public. And what better vehicle than Sky and Telescope to make that happen? And so it really is synergistic. Uh, we have we we have a plan to continue into the indefinite future. We're just coming up on our 80th. This is our 80th anniversary year of publication, oh, I know. Sky and Telescope. I know. And with the with the uh, with the, being able to, in a sense, wrap ourselves around. Uh, in the in the the flag of of the AAS has been really good, in terms of longtime amateur astronomers who might be wavering in whether or not to renew again. Now they're renewing because it's for a good cause, right? Now the profit, literally the the profit, whatever profit Sky and Telescope makes, is not going to some you know money grubbing publishing conglomerate. It's going to the AAS. It is a, for a good cause. And so we, we see a long and successful future uh, for, for both the AAS and Sky and Telescope. Thanks well, for a, asking. Well, that's a relief because I, well, it has a special place in my heart. I grew yeah. up with Sky and Telescope. It matters to me. Didn't and we if all? You're, I, and if you're, <laughs> if you're a new, uh, if you're just getting into the hobby for the first time and you're listening to this, you just bought your first telescope. There is no better resource for you to learn about the hobby other than this podcast. <laughs> Than Sky and Telescope magazine because because it, it it and the website is you know we talk about it being a, a print magazine it is very good and it's beautiful but it's uh, the website is actually a, a, another source of really good information that you should check right. out if you want to know what the what's up at night or what what you know what what are some good things to observe just general articles all of it so and Sky to, and Telescope and, and to state the obvious it's skyandtelescope.org. Right. Uh, we used yes. to be a dot com, but now we're a nonprofit, so it's dot org. And, <laughs> uh, and and especially, you know, you've got that new telescope, and you want to know how to use it. We have scads of articles. That's an actual technical term, scads. Scads <laughs> of articles on how to buy a telescope, how to use your new telescope, how to use a star chart, what what things are up in the sky right now. I could go on. Exactly. And that's, it's, it's a premier source folks. So you need to learn about it if you don't know about it and get involved if you can. So, uh, international dark sky week starts today. This is April 5th. It'll be going through the 12th. Get involved. Like Kelly says, uh, and, and do some, do some citizen science work to help us understand our current situation with light pollution. And, uh, can they also join the uh, international dark sky association? 
Oh my God! Yes, uh, I, uh, I, I the, thought you might. <laughs> the, the, so the so the so the website is darksky.org. Darksky.org. And here's the thing, Tony. You know, especially in, in amateur astronomers, all of you amateur astronomers out there, I want you to raise your hand if you belong to the IDA. Uh huh. I didn't. Yeah. Well, that's one of you, Tony. All right. <laughs> The reality is that amateur astronomers, the group that stands the most to gain or lose from the success of these light pollution efforts, are some of the least uh, engaged in terms of the idea. Really? Oh, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Oh, I, wow. when I, whenever I give a talk to an amateur astronomy group, I get like maybe three hands out of 100 of membership in the idea. And that is pathetically sad yes. because because. There, you might imagine there are a lot of places where the staff and volunteers like me can apply our energies to reduce light pollution, but we need staff. We need those resources. We Even if you're not going down yourself, if you're shy and not going to your planning commission to try to get lights uh, controlled in your community and you want us to do the work for you, okay, so ante up, become a member. And, and that's, nice. that's enough uh, on that. Yeah, good advice. Okay, darksky.org and skyandtelescope.org. <laughs> Kelly Beatty, uh, thank you so much for taking time out to uh, talk with us about this. Um, I always enjoy This is my second time getting to talk to you, so I really enjoy it. So thank you again for joining our podcast. It's a pleasure, Tony. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, Dustin will hopefully be back next week. He's, he's away this week, so he couldn't join us on this episode. So on behalf of Dustin and Kelly Beatty, my name is Tony Darnell. Thank you so much for watching and listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>